Now boarding our first class ultra gold passengers. Welcome into Other People's Shoes, the podcast that takes you on an extraordinary journey through the lives of others where empathy knows no bounds. Your host, Neil Matthews, is absolutely thrilled that you're here. Please take your seat as we're about to take flight into season 16. Be sure to hold on tight because take flight isn't just about the skies above. It's about the depths within. We'll dive headfirst into the stories of those who faced turbulence and yet found the strength to rise above it all. So grab your headphones and get ready to soar with us as we launch into season 16. Thank you for flying with us. Buckle up and let's take flight. That is right. Let us take flight today. So excited that you've joined us on this first class flight today. Let me tell you how excited I am to be not only hitting record today, but sitting behind this amazing Rodecaster Pro microphone. Here's why. In five years now, we can now say it. We have reached five years. We have recorded in houses. We have recorded in coffee shops. We have recorded in Starbucks. I know, and no drinks were free that day. Oh, by the way, we have recorded in basements. We have recorded in cars. We have recorded in, well, I don't know where else, but now we can officially say we are recording in the shoe shack shed or shoebox shed or she shed, shoe shed, shoe or he shed, she shed. Yeah, I practiced all those in the mirror this morning. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Speaking of saying thank you so much, my brother-in-law, Rory, he's been a sponsor of the show from the jump, the center jump ball at referee. Yeah. From from the beginning, he has loved and supported the show. He says he doesn't always agree with what I say. Who does? Just have to say right now in this moment, I am grateful for his kindness and his generosity. He has created a shoe shed shack, whatever, again, whatever we're calling it. And I'm so excited to celebrate five years in this room. And I'm so excited after a long back and forth reschedule. Here we are. No, we're not. Here we are again. My new friend, Zach, all the way from Texas. So it's kind of fitting because we we love Texas. If it wasn't North Carolina, we'd probably love it more. We do love Texas. We've been there so many times. Zach, I just want to welcome you in. For officially, you're the first. It's something to be said about being first. Texas knows a lot about that. You get to be the first. Welcome in to the Shoe Shack Studio. Thank you, brother. I'm absolutely honored to be the first guest inside of the Shoe Shack Studio. It's been great just to go back and forth with you before the show. I love your energy, and I'm really excited to dive into the topics today. Now, I didn't wear any Texas stuff today. You were saying pre-flight because we're in this mm -hmm. new season called Take Flight. So I feel like we mm -hmm. can't say green room anymore. We have to say pre-flight. You were noticing there is a lot of North Carolina stuff. Even though I live in Texas, I was born in Baton Rouge. I'm a uh, purple and gold LSU all the way through and also the Saints. Wow. Also, I'm going to be in North Carolina tomorrow. Well, that's great. Where are you going to be about? Maybe we know uh, the place. I'm flying into Charlotte okay. for uh, the Modern Man Retreat. So I'm a co-facilitator at Retreat. I don't know. Where are you in North Carolina? Are you in the I'm Charlotte not. area? <laughs> Raleigh-Durham? That's very deceptive, right? Yeah. I'm actually in Oregon. Oh, you okay. So like yeah. you, you've got the North Carolina vibes, but you're yes. in the middle of, of Oregon. Okay. Yeah. And I know you're kind of tatted. So I, I got to, yeah. I don't know if this will translate really well. That is a ram. Oh, yeah. No. On my year. arm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The mascot. That's the dedication. See, I always ask somebody, like, they say, oh, you're you're sort of a fan. I'm like, I'm kind of more than a fan. They're mm. like, no, you're, come on, you sort of like them. I'm like, no, look, look at my arm. <laughs> well, that's, that takes fandom to a whole new element. Yeah, I've got a tiger on my shoulder, so I'm with you. Well, everyone should have a tiger on their shoulder. Just saying. I don't. I mean, others should. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Zach, again, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to get into your story. Before we get to it, though, I got to ask this very important question. Now, listen, I know you're a speaker, you've traveled, you've been all these other places, but I'm wondering this, has anyone ever asked you what size shoes do you wear at the start of an event? No, no, you will be the first. I'm an 11 and a half. Interestingly enough, my foot shrank when I became an adult because I went through my growth period and I was like, uh, there was a time where like my age matched my shoe size. So like I was like seven, I wore a size seven, eight, I wore a size eight. And I got up to 13, I wore a size 13. And then it just kind of started to like settle in, I guess, from the growth spurt. I went down to a 12 and then I went to 11 and a half. That's where I'm at now. <laughs> so I wear about a 10 and a half, 11, again, depending on brand, every shoe fits differently. Can consistently started wearing an 11 a while back. And now I can kind of sort of fit in a 10 and a half, but it, it's, it's a little tighter. It's like putting a large shirt on me. It doesn't like I have to go XL to XL sometimes. I'm, I'm a bigger dude. So I've never really shared this with, well, I have, you know, with some, <laughs> you know, not on a podcast. So I, I'm probably a 12 if I would tie my shoes, but I don't like tying my shoes. Do you know, 11 and a half and then snug. And then that way I can leave my laces untied. So that's why I go there. <laughs> my mom makes fun of me constantly in a good way. I taught you how to tie your shoes. And every time I see you, they're never tied. I'm like, mom, that's how the cool kids do it. Stop it. Like, I'm trying to be cool. <laughs> With my Jordan well, 4s, I'm trying to be cool. I'm not tying them. And then the other day, I got mocked because my tongue is flipped forward and I tied behind the, the tongue. And so now the mm -hmm. tug like stands out. And I got mm -hmm. mocked at work the other day. Somebody was making fun of my tongue. They're like, you got to tuck that tongue in. I'm like, no, that's that's what I want to do. Well, well, they're not cool anyways, bro. So don't worry. All right. Well, now here's my favorite question. The, the size thing is always, you know, people are always like, ah, why do you ask that? I'm like, it's very important. The more important question is brand and style. So help us with that. Brand and style. Okay. I have a few. One, I like Vans a lot. Comfort for like casual wear or actually even to work out in. I uh, enjoy Vans. On the other side, I like Nike. I'm an Air Max guy. So I have a lot of Air Maxes. And for a short time, I went through some Kyrie Irvings. I really like Kyrie Irvings, the way that they fit. Yeah, I see your disagreement, but it's okay. Whatever. You're not cool either. <laughs> I did have some Jordans. Actually, some of my favorite pair of shoes were some Jordans. I think they're the Jordan like twos. They were black and they had the, the blue outline to them. And they look more like a boot. I really enjoyed those. But it's interesting. Like I used to be a bodybuilder. So like in bodybuilding, you know, it's all about your swag and your shoes and everything else. And that now these days, I have them all in my closet. They're still there. I only wear probably two or three of them. And it's just pretty consistent what shoes I wear now. The Kyrie Irvings, I can't get around. He went to a school that I don't even like to talk about. You don't even like to think about. Oh, okay. Granted, so he only played 11 games for them. He's still trash, in my opinion. Was he Duke? Yes, he was. The, the unspoken uh, The unspoken team. name. Yeah. Yeah. If you go on our social media right now, there might be a really cool picture of me at Cameron Indoor doing some, maybe some unmentionable things. Just saying. <laughs> had to go to the bathroom. Didn't know where to go. I found a place though, oddly enough. All right. Well, Zach, getting into you and your story and what you're about, I'm curious about this. We're in this season called Take Flight. Now, some people immediately thought, what on earth? Why? <laughs> I was like, well, here's why. For the longest time, for years, actually struggled with getting on an airplane and flying. The idea of it just was almost debilitating. I know it's a fast way to travel. I've been told that the safest place to travel more than a car. I mean, all these things. Things, but every time I would get in, I would buckle my seatbelt. 
would come on, I would almost like start to have this panic attack. And so everybody's like, oh, that's what Take Flight's about. I'm like, well, yes, part of it. But the idea also to go with one of my favorite basketball players of all time, Jordan, I grew up in that era, and seeing that man take flight. Now, granted, I know he was jumping, but it seemed like as a kid, he was flying. And Nike did an amazing job marketing those shoes to think if you wore those and you put those on, you could be like Mike. Thank you, Gatorade. You could fly. And so I really started to think about this season. I thought, I wonder how many people have ever felt grounded. Now, I know as a kid, I was grounded a lot. I did some pretty bad things and I deserved them. The idea of, again, being grounded, being restricted, and then being able to take flight. And so I'm curious for you, when we set the stage for that, what comes to mind when you think about that? The analogy that I would put forth between being grounded and taking flight is that most people can't take flight until they ground themselves into reality. Many times when we're having experiences in our life that we are unfond of or painful. We want to avoid them. We don't want to accept that it's actually happening. So we do what we can to avoid. And there's plenty of external distractions that can help us avoid our cell phones and social media. For myself, pornography is still rampant amongst our population. The television is a way to avoid getting into substance abuse, drinking, drugs, ways to avoid. You know, there's so many different ways that people use to avoid their pain. But what I like to say is that you can't actually shift reality until you accept the reality that you're in. If you really want to take flight, you have to first ground yourself in what is actually happening and what is the reality that I'm in. And the bad things, the things that you think are bad, because those are the anchors that are preventing you from taking flight. Kind of hard to take off if you got a 50-pound sack that you're carrying and you've been carrying it for a long time and you're tired and you're exhausted. A lot of men that I work with that are entrepreneurs that also, in this analogy, are carrying that emotional baggage are just flat out exhausted. They're trying to expand past a certain level. They see themselves with a certain amount of wealth or a certain amount of impact. This experience I'm explaining, they haven't been able to get to that point and they're frustrated and they're tired and they're not realizing that to get to the higher space, you got to let go of what no longer serves you. You got to forgive yourself for the things that you've done in the past so that you can release the energy. And then at that point, you naturally start to float. Maybe instead of take flight, you start to float and you just float to the thing that you're calling in because you no longer have the anchor that's holding you back from what you're calling in. First off, thanks for that. I already, I, I like it a lot. A lot of what you're saying are really is impactful. Why quit though? You tell us in your description, it was 16 years just to help. Mm -hmm. Why stop after 16 years? I mean, why not continue? I think there's not a guy on the planet and, and I'll say mm -hmm. this blanket general statement because I think it's factual. I have not met a guy so far that has not on some level struggled with lust or pornography and I do lump them together like salt and pepper. You can't have one without the other. First place I'm going to go is just the direct correlation with sexual energy to creative energy. So these are one and the same. They actually come from the same energy center in the body, which is the sacral energy center. And that might be a little bit woo-woo for people. The human neurology, there's actually neurons that are physically in place on the body where these energy centers are. And if I were to relate this to you, whenever you become sexually aroused, all people will feel it in their lower gut. There's a feeling of warmth. There's a feeling of desire. Coincidentally, also when you feel shame or embarrassment, you also feel a feeling in that lower gut, in that lower area. And that's actually your sacral. We're talking about creative life force energy. And even more so, think about what it means to have sex. 
This is actually creation. If you were to have sex with a woman and create another human, that is the power of this energy. So when you start to drain your creative life force energy towards something that is only taking from you and not giving you anything back, then you're limiting yourself from the maximum amount of creativity and willpower it takes to create the vision that you see for your life. So for me, why I stopped? I was depressed, doing a lot of drugs, hated myself. I was causing pain for for not only myself at the time, my ex-wife, who I got a divorce, she requested a divorce from me. Alignment with being honest with people, with being honest with myself. I had hurt others by being dishonest. People that I loved, I was hurting. And that is one of the biggest things with addiction is that you end up giving up everything for one thing. And healing is giving up one thing for everything. All of that created pressure in my life for me to wake up. And it was really like I was put into a corner. It was you're either going to shift, you're either going to wake up and truly start to take responsibility for your life and your healing and what you have done so far, or you're going to continue to suffer and experience hell on earth. And that was something I was unwilling to do up to that point. Help me with this. Did the request of the divorce, was that because of the addiction to porn? Anybody that's struggled with addiction, and I'm going to be narrow with this in a sense of saying addiction, but then also I want to bring people into the awareness that what I'm about to say also inhibits you from being your authentic self. So anybody that struggles with addiction, lying, hiding, denying, and trying are four walls of dishonesty that you essentially use to protect the addiction. First of all, hiding is a symptom of shame. I have never met somebody that hides something they're proud of. We only hide the things that we shame ourselves for. For myself, being addicted to porn, and the conditioning of our society that has shamed sex and shamed this activity makes it so that I didn't want to talk about it. Since I didn't want to talk about it, I denied how much of a problem it was in my life. Well, interesting thing about denial is that denial actually empowers it to exist because if it didn't exist, there'd be nothing to deny. So the more I deny it, the more I empower it to exist. The more I hide it, the more I empower it to exist. And so it persists in my life every single day. Lying. And lying can go from bold face lying to myself, saying things like, this will be the last time after I had just watched porn and masturbated to it, and that wasn't the last time, to lying to my ex-wife about it. Having jovial conversation with men about porn in a way that it is socially acceptable, really what I was feeling about porn is that it was causing me to suffer. Even having comments like, bro, did you watch porn? I do that. Like, it's not a big deal. That's lying. And then trying. Trying, a lot of people don't think about as being dishonest. There's an energy to try. And the energy to try is that you fail. The only thing Thing that is a response from trying is failing because you don't actually achieve. You don't actually get the result that you're looking for. And it becomes a cop out. In the moment, if you're going for a goal and you say, well, at least I'm trying, you rarely feel better. Then long term, you suffer because you do not get the result. And failure is the thing that's holding you back. So these four walls of dishonesty protect an addiction to continue to happen. So you actually are protecting your own suffering, which makes no sense. Again, I want to bring it to a wider stance that these four walls of dishonesty, if anybody that's listening wanted to write down in a journaling prompt, what am I hiding? What am I denying? What am I lying to myself and others? And what am I trying to achieve that I'm not? You'll find the walls that you've put around your own soul that's imprisoning you from being your authentic self. I can't help but think of Yoda in this moment. I loved the Star Wars as a kid. I still do as an adult. But there is that scene when 
Luke is in Dagobah and the X-Wing is sinking and all life, all hope, all anything is drowning right in front of him. And he mm-hmm. knows darn well if he doesn't get that thing out, he's never getting off that planet. He's never leaving. His friends are in danger. He can't help them. He's stuck. And he tries. He tries really hard. He tries. He tries. He tries. And he sits down just exasperated little temper tantrum child that he is. And then Yoda all of a sudden pulls it out. Mark Hamill is astonished. Little puppet got it out of the water. You do or you don't. There is no try. I hear you say that. I know you're not Yoda. I feel like so many guys say, I want to get clean. I want to try. And we've had so many episodes like yours through the last years. And I committed to the beginning of the show that I think every season we're going to have this type of conversation, whether it be guy or gal, it doesn't matter. I just feel like that if we're not having this conversation, somebody's going to forget about it. We're just in too fast of a pace of a culture. What are you experiencing on your side when you're interacting with guys? Is there still this try? This still like, well, I mean, I could try to get clean. I could try. I can go a week. Maybe you're asking me to almost give up my right arm. The scariest thing for any human being to do is to commit. Trying is the cop out from commitment. And if we're talking about men in particular, and I'm talking about masculine energy. So I'm not talking about a man as masculine energy. Masculine energy is a state of being. And masculine energy in this sense is being integrous, being honest, being responsible. So I like to lean on integrity here because this is what is needed for a man to achieve the goals that he sets out to achieve. Integrity is I do what I say I'm going to do when I say I'm going to do it. That's commitment. And that's also creation. If I spoke it and then did it, I would get the result that I'm looking for every single time. What happens is, is that we make a commitment and then we start to be victim to our reasons, excuses, and circumstances on why we are not upholding our word. We get the result of the reason, excuse, or circumstance. And we're not dumb. We come up with really good excuses. Really good excuses. Same thing. Tricks on you. The good excuse makes you feel better temporarily. Then long term, you suffer if you don't get the result that you're looking for. Also, integrity is what creates trust not only within yourself, but it's what creates trust within a relationship with a woman. My favorite definition for integrity, and it's like the third one down on Google, is a state of being whole and undivided. I like to think about integrity as a bridge. If I'm about to drive my car across a bridge, I want to know that there's no cracks in that bridge. I want to know that that bridge is solid. It's going to uphold my car when I drive across it. Same thing energetically that happens when I am my word, and I'm my word, and my partner is with me. She knows that she can lean up against me and I'm not going to fall. She trusts that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. The only way she does that because I do what I say I'm going to do for myself. So one of the first characteristics that I start to work with men to embody is integrity. Secondly, honesty. Thirdly, responsibility. But these also all intertwine and play together beautifully when it comes to getting the result that you want. So if it's that you want to quit porn, again, tell me you want to quit. You're not committed. You're interested. You're not committed. Tell me I'm committed to quitting porn. Okay, cool. Now we're going to have a different conversation. Typically, I don't work with guys that say they want or they are interested in. I work with guys that say, look, man, I realize what this has done in my life. I realize the effect that this has had on my own ability to create what I want to create. I realize the effect that this has had on the people around me and no more 
I'm committed to leaving this behind. Okay, now we can have a conversation. 16 years of battling porn addiction, 10 years of drug use, information you gave us. What was harder to quit, porn or drugs, or are they the same in your mind? Porn is harder to quit, and there's a reason for it. It's actually the biochemicals that are released during watching pornography, actually the entire experience of pornography to masturbation. First, I'll talk about like drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol, when taken, typically produce dopamine and serotonin. Serotonin being the chemical of the present that makes you feel really good now. Dopamine being the anticipation of feeling good when you're about to take the thing you're going to take. When it comes to porn, let's just play the, the cycle out. So let's say you're in your present moment and you're feeling some sort of stress or anxiety that you want to escape from. The escape is then to start pulling up pornography on your computer or on your phone. That's dopamine. So you're anticipating watching pornography. Now for myself, when I was in the middle of the addiction, I would open up, you know, multiple tabs, sometimes 10 tabs on the screen would be up of different scenes. And each time I open up a tab, I will create more dopamine to flood into my body. Then I'm doing the deed. I'm starting to masturbate. Well, once I ejaculate, the body produces a huge flood of oxytocin and dopamine. Now, oxytocin is the key chemical here. It's the binding hormone. Oxytocin is the love hormone. This is what creates a trusting, weirdly trusting relationship, loyal relationship with pornography. Now, once you're done with that, typically, if you're somebody who does not want to watch pornography, you first feel guilt. I did a bad thing. And then you feel shame. I am a bad person. I'm a bad man. When you are in those states, you produce cortisol and norepinephrine, which is your stress chemicals. You take those chemicals back into your present moment. You now have more stress in your present moment, which wants you to escape more from that present moment, and you then repeat the cycle. So the difference between most drugs and alcohol is the oxytocin chemical. And whenever I'm working with men, I like to call porn their mistress. It's exactly what it is. When you create an it to be an entity, then you can start to see the relationship that you have with that entity. And then we can start learning how to detangle the attachments on the mental plane, physical plane, and spiritual plane that are keeping you stuck in and being enslaved by pornography. I love the clinical side of this. I don't think we've had this type of element yet. We have a lot of guys to talk about. And again, I'm not dismissing or throwing rocks at anyone right. else's story or anyone else's experience. Great authors come on. I've had friends come on and talk about how it was for them. I feel like for the first time, we're getting a chemical, biological element to it. And I love that you're bringing that facet to this addiction, truly. I'm guessing you've seen Top Gun. Yeah, I've seen Top Gun. There is a scene in Top Gun that always makes me cringe because I grew up a big fan. My A lot of my friend group, we took on different characters and we made them our little nicknames and monikers. I have a really good friend. He is still to this day in my phone as Mav. Every now and then I get called Mother Goose. My wife growing up was Carol, Goose's wife. There is a scene in Top Gun where they're going head to head with Iceman. They're trying to get points. They're trying to move up. Maverick and Goose end up in a flat spin. So when Goose dies, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Top Gun, where have you been? You should have already watched it. Mav can do nothing, can do nothing in that moment to recover the plane. They're spinning, they're spinning, they're spinning. And there's a scene that flashes to Val Kilmer as Iceman. And he says, Mav's going out to sea. 
He's in a flat spin. He can't stop it. And Goose tries to eject. That's how he dies. Again, spoiler. And they hit the water. And Maverick immediately just feels this tremendous amount of guilt for what has happened. I wonder about that for guys right now. That they've been in this flat spin that they can't recover. They can't recover. They can't recover. And they're waiting for Maverick to come to their aid as they're dying and save them. And nobody's coming. They continue to hide. Now, listen, I've been in church groups. I, I haven't been in too many secular groups. So I can't really say what the secular world is doing, but I have been in a lot of church groups and guys hiding still and guys wanting to, to just stay hidden. I mm -hmm. equated a lot to a turtle being in the shell. I'm just going to get in my shell and everything's going to be fine. What for you finally said, okay, enough is enough. I'm done. I'm out. The threat of losing my ex-wife was a huge motivator for me. Talking about somebody that I had devoted my life to, chosen my life to. We had a business together. At the time, I was a personal trainer and online fitness coach, and so was she. When it was that I was out with the pornography, she didn't leave immediately. We were together for another nine months, and actually, I ended up going to a, a sex therapist for a short time and an anxiety therapist to, to work through what was happening. And you know, the sex therapist recommended Hey, you know, the best thing to do is to go 90 days, nothing. So no porn, no sex, no jacking off, no nothing. And I had enough motivation during that time that I was able to achieve that. And I, whenever I say this to a lot of men that have struggled with going even a week, it's, it's like, well, how? And I'll just tell you that when you have a strong enough why and a strong enough motivator with an accountability, with transparency, because my ex-wife knew about it, she was there to hold me accountable and to have open and transparent conversation. Hiding is not transparent. It empowers it to continue to exist. Speaking about it with your partner or somebody that you trust that will hold you accountable now puts it out into the open. And that's what's so valuable about having a guide or somebody that's with you through the process. My ex-wife left me, not because of the addiction. I was actually really proud of myself for no longer watching it. There are still behaviors that are around the addiction, again, that keep the addiction alive. Lying. Just because I'm lying about the addiction doesn't mean I'm not lying about other things. And I was. I was lying about other things. I was still controlling the situation. I was trying to control her. Part of being an addict is trying to control others and manipulate others so they don't find your addiction. These behaviors were still mapped into my subconscious program and I wasn't aware of them. And when she left, she said, I could have stayed with you through the addiction. It said, I can't trust you. You've lied to me so many times. And that's why I need to go. To bring that story back in, she didn't leave me because of the porn addiction. She left me because I had dishonored her out of integrity and lied to her. And she felt like she couldn't read build trust with me anymore. And that's what actually was the end of our relationship. Can someone get free without some type of higher purpose? Whether it be Jesus, again, insert deity, however you desire. I wonder, do you need something higher than you? Yeah. And again, using that terminology, I would just think what you need is your higher self. The guys that I work with, the first session that we have, I ask them to define what is the highest version of themselves look like. And we do it in characteristics. This is actually virtue ethics and it's Aristotle. This is going back centuries. And essentially what it is, is you align with virtues or values internally, states of being, and you clearly define what that is. And most people, most men can't answer that question because they're so deep in their enslaved addiction that they don't even know what it looks like to be the, the highest version of themselves. Getting clearly defined on what that is, what is the highest version of yourself? How would that man be? And again, these are internal characteristics, not what would you do and what would you have? Who would you be? Would you be integrous? Would you be honest? Would you be courageous? Would you be loving? Would 
Would you be compassionate? Would you be graceful? What are the characteristics that align with that? Once we have that clear, now we have something to measure against. Now we have something to choose towards. And without the knowledge of understanding who you are without your name, your job, your relationships, and everything else, it's very difficult to find clarity. Whether it's a higher power or you realize that the higher power is you, which is actually more empowering, the direction that I bring people. Because if we can find out who you want to be, then it's very easy to align what you want to do and then what you will have from there. It's just the way things actually are. It is the be, do, have, rather than the way that our mind thinks about it, which is that if I do something, I'll have something and I can be someone. And that never works. I love movies, obviously. We've had, I think, two now, maybe three. <laughs> this may be four. I've lost count. Let's go back to middle school you. Jump in the mm-hmm. DeLorean with me. Middle school you. Where, wherever we find you, whatever age you are, people get weirded out about age, but yet shoe size is fine. Where do we find you and what are you doing? Well, middle school me was my awkward stage. My dad was in the military, so we moved around a lot. About every four years, I find myself in a new space. So middle school, I had just moved from Georgia, where in Georgia, I was had a lot of friends. I was popular in school. Uh, I was always good at sports. I was a three-sport star. And then it was the first move right into middle school into Fairfax, Virginia. I was going through an awkward phase. Nobody knew me. I used to have a big gap in between my teeth. I used to slick back my hair like grease. I wore wrestling shirts and Marvel shirts. And and at the time, Marvel was still a nerd thing. Now Marvel is popular everywhere. I was made fun of a lot. And I was still good at sports, but I had taken a huge hit in my own identity of moving there. I was always a smart kid. I actually failed French. It was the first thing I ever failed in my life in school. So And I had some behavior things that were showing up. So middle school for me was, was pretty tumultuous. Have you discovered porn at that point? No, it wasn't until I was 14. So for me, I was a young for my age range. So 14 was ninth grade for me. And also 14 for me was the year 2000. And that was the year that we got broadband internet. So we moved from dial-up AOL to broadband internet. And I like to say that that year was the birth of internet pornography, video pornography, because now the internet could handle these high-speed videos that were coming through. And I had always been told, I was raised Catholic, and I was always told, hey, you don't watch porn. Porn is a sin. Having sex before marriage is a sin. All these different ways that, unfortunately, religion shames sex, which is a very interesting topic to go down because ultimately sex is what creates life. That's when I had discovered it. Just like any person, if you tell somebody not to do something and then you don't give them the explanation to the effects of what that thing is, is, it creates curiosity. I was also 14. My hormones were high, so I was horny. I started to explore at a perfect time internet pornography. An interesting study started coming out in 2009, 2010. So again, not until nine to 10 years later before they started doing studies on the effects of video pornography in relation to still imagery. And what they found is that video pornography will start to reprogram your subconscious mind up to 10 times faster than still imagery because there's more things happening on the screen. There's a story, there's scenes, there's all these things that are happening. So it's actually reprogramming your mind at a much faster rate than just like a playboy and looking at a still imagery where you can create your own stories if you like, but some men wouldn't do that. They would just see a naked woman and do what they do. So middle school you hasn't discovered porn yet. You can go back in time and change that. Would you do it? Not at this point. There was plenty of times in the middle of it where, of course, I would not have wanted that. Now I can look back and the the work that I do with myself is the same work I do with men in which, you know, we we need to go back to these former selves and greet them because it's it's during that time where we start to fracture ourselves off from our wholeness. Back and visited my 14-year-old self, I didn't realize how angry I was with him. I was angry with him because it was that point that started the addiction. But also my 14-year-old self didn't 
that know that that choice was going to lead to a 16-year addiction had no idea. So I was angry with my 14-year-old self for not knowing. And that pattern was something that I recognized in my life going forward because a lot of addicts also experience perfectionism. And that's also a, an effect of perfectionism. When I do it right the first time, if you don't do it right the first time, you beat yourself up. It makes no sense. You've never had the experience of it. How would you do it perfect if that's the case? So I was able to go back and forgive myself, one, for being angry with my 14-year-old self and also forgive my 14-year-old self for not knowing any better. And that was very healing for me immense value. You talk about walking in another person's shoes. It's really empathy. When you've experienced that level of suffering, it's given me a perspective with anybody that I'm with that they only get grace from me. The things that I've done in my life, the things that I have done that I am not proud of with my ex-wife, with my own behavior, with porn, who am I to throw a stone when I live in my own glass house? We're all living in a glass house is the truth of the matter. And nobody has a right to throw stones at anyone. So in that way, as I've accepted myself and love myself fully, I now accept and love others because it's what's happening internally. The other thing is it's created my intuition to be very strong. I can pick up on somebody else's shame, somebody else's guilt, somebody else's fear and anger very quickly because I know the feeling. I'm emotionally literate meaning that most men are not emotionally literate, which means that they can't identify what the emotion is. Most men are like, I'm embarrassed. Okay, what emotion is that? I don't know. Just so anybody's listening, embarrassment is shame. That's shame. My lower stomach feels uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. I don't know what that is. So until you can identify being emotionally literate, you can't be emotionally intelligent. The fact that I can identify my emotions and I know what they feel like, what's most personal is most universal. When I can experience somebody else who is also feeling shame, and since I can identify it, I know what it is. That allows me to be a better guide for them and to be able to bring them to what they really want to experience, which is unconditional love for themselves. Does the church get porn wrong, in your opinion? I don't think that they get it wrong. I just think that they go about it the wrong way. To me, pornography is being enslaved by something outside of yourself. When you can't quit something, even though you want to quit, you're enslaved by it. And slavery is a lack of choice. And most addicts feel like they don't have a choice, which isn't true. They choose it all the time. They just don't realize that to be the case. And enslavement is a victim stance. The reason why I say this is that, hey, like I like to think about pornography at this point as like if I were to go to a buffet, there's all sorts of different food options that I can choose from. But I have my tray and I look out and I can pick what I want to choose. So pornography Pornography is just an option on the buffet. I can choose it or I cannot choose it. Now, I know what the effects of those things are, which is very is suffering. And I don't want to have an effect of suffering. So I choose not to have that anymore. I choose not to eat pornography anymore. So I do feel that, yes, inherently, it is of a enslaving, controlling, suffering effect. And if we're talking about a church and you want to talk about love and Jesus, and if, if we're talking about Christianity or even Buddhism and being unattached, they're all the different ways of going into the light and finding God, then pornography seems to be at odds with that. Now, telling people that if you watch pornography, you're going to hell. If you have sex before marriage, you're going to hell. It's a sin. You must repent. Creates the guilt and shame cycle because the word sin automatically has a response of guilt, shame. What if there was no sins? What if there was really just an experience that you had that you realized did not bring you the happiness and love you were looking for? Well, that's an objective view of it. And there's no emotional response for me that says, 
says I'm guilty or shameful for that. And here's the trick of it all. Guilt and shame is what perpetuates the pattern. Guilt and shame is what perpetuates the hiding, the denying, the lying. That's what is actually creating it to continue. That is the cause. Pornography is just the effect of that deeper cause. So until we start to realize that our emotions are what actually continue to have us experience the things that either we want or what we don't, you'll continue to experience the things that you don't want. And especially when it comes to pornography use. For years, the church has made people feel absolutely like you're describing. Mm-hmm. I don't think it adds to it. I think it just puts more on. It's a rare church that comes along and puts their arm around, like you're talking about grace, mm-hmm. which is, I love that word. I think mm-hmm. grace is, is much needed, much like empathy. And I think sometimes I feel like the church should just come around somebody, put their arm around them and walk with them rather than throw rocks at them. And again, we're speaking in generalities. A lot of my clients have been LDS, so Mormon, and a lot of them have pornography issues. A lot of them have sex issues, and it's the dogma of the church specifically. Same thing with Catholicism. And on it, and if you look at a map of uh, the highest concentration of known porn addiction, it's the Southeast United States, which is the Bible Belt, and Utah. Those are the highest areas of concentration in the United States. So there's no accident that's also happening in a place where intolerance is being preached rather than teaching and understanding. To give this an example, I don't have children yet. If I do have a son, I plan on. And if, if I do have a son, I'm not going to tell him not to watch pornography. I'm going to say, son, I had 16 years of pornography addiction. Here's the experiences that I had because of this use. If you choose to do this, know that it's possible that you will experience the same thing. And I don't want that for you, but it's still your choice. That's actually the best way for us to be able to honor somebody else's choice for them to either choose for or against it. My 14-year-old self didn't know what he was choosing into. I didn't know any better. So if I give him the option, would you like to be connected with a woman? Would you like to experience sex through the body and have a spiritual experience the way it's supposed to be experienced? Would you like to be able to be fully transparent and open and fully loved and fully seen and fully heard by a woman and your friends? Or would you like to dive into pornography? Would you like to hide in a room and feel shameful about what you're doing? Would you like to feel disconnected from your potential partner, from your friends, from your purpose? Which one would you like to choose? That is the way that you actually give somebody the information for them to make an educated choice. And if what I have done with men is this, essentially, I bring them out of the illusion of being enslaved and I make them aware of the choice that they're making and the realization that they've always had a choice. I want to bring this together in a sense of what the 12 steps does in a way that I actually say, hey, the 12 steps is faulty because it starts on two false premises. Hi, my name is Zach and I am a porn addict and I am powerless against my addiction. First faulty thing, I am an addict is an identification that continues to have you experience addiction. I don't say that I'm a recovering addict. I say that I had an experience of addiction, but I am no longer experiencing addiction. That's a different thing. It's no longer my identification. Secondly, I am so powerful that I created my addiction. I am so powerful that I created suffering in my life, which means that I'm powerful enough to create love, joy, and happiness. I'm not a victim. I am the co-creator of my experiences. And when I take responsibility for those, I can actually start to change the reality and create what I want to create in my life. I got to be honest, when you first started saying that you're going to just let him do it, I was like, whoa, (laughs) hold on a second. Hold on. Wait a minute. Did you have somebody growing up for you? Maybe it was a coach, maybe a mentor, maybe it was even your dad that really tried to explain the dangers of porn for you or was that missed? 
No, it was unspoken. And also, I, I don't blame my parents at all. Look, my parents were brought up in the 70s. There was no internet. My parents didn't know what was going to happen with the information world and the technology and everything else. And that's something that I accept when I start having children is I'm going to raise my children based off what I know. 20 years from now, what's it going to look like? Are we going to have contacts that are cell phones at this point? I'm never going to put a chip inside of my body, but are there going to be people that have chips inside of their body where they can access the internet in their mind. All I can do is bring my children back to choice and also educate them on the choices that they're making and then honor whatever choice they're going to make, knowing that it's perfect for their path. Going back to what you asked me, if I was going to have the experience, would I do it again? Yes. Without me experiencing what I am not, I wouldn't know who I am. This is polarity. This is duality. Light cannot exist without the dark. Without the, the dark, without the shadow, light doesn't know what it is. I can't experience love without fear. So with knowing that, that, there's no point in me being angry about sadness or my past. I see the value in it because it led me to who I actually am. When I think about going back and I think about changing things and I think about, man, if I could just get a hold of Marty, if I could get a hold of Doc Brown, if I could get in the DeLorean, so many things would be different. Illustrating what you're sharing is the idea that those things shaped you, those things made you, those things created you in some respects. In a hundred percent respect. I mean, that's exactly what it is. If you go back and you eliminate the experiences that brought you to who you are, then you no longer become who you are. That's the trap. It's the trick of the ego. That's also going back to the very thing we talked about in the beginning. Regret is a denial of reality. When you go back and say, I should, I would, I coulda, you're denying reality. You're not living in reality. You're not accepting it. Because the truth of the matter is, is that you should, have, would, have, coulda did exactly what you did because it's what you did. Now, when you sit in that perspective, now I'm in reality. Okay, this is what I did. What am I going to choose to do moving forward? Regret actually is interesting because it gives you the lesson, but you don't integrate the lesson. You could say, well, I should have said this. Well, that's actually the lesson. But the fact that you said I should have said this means that you don't bring it into reality. And guess what? You'll do it again. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with that uh, experience regret because a lot of this has to do with regret. And they're like, you know, I should have did this. I was like, how many times do you say I should have did this, that in your life? Oh, all the time. You're just perpetuating the pattern because you're not living in reality. You're denying it over and over again. Well, Zach, I'm curious about this as we begin to make our final descent into Medford. If somebody's curious about knowing more about Zach and maybe has a friend, I, by the way, I should openly admit this. When I usually talk about myself in the third person, I usually use the name Zach or I have a friend named Zach that needs help. Since you are a Zach, I'm going to fully acknowledge that right now in this moment and apologize to Zach's all over the world. <laughs> Apology accepted. All right. Thank you. Because often I'll say, well, you know, I got a friend named Zach and he needs da 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 when I'm really talking about me. Mm. Now I feel like I can't do that anymore because now I have Zach. I have a face with Zach now and I don't look <laughs> nearly as awesome as you do. Is there a way folks can continue this conversation? Do you help us with that? What what would be the best way somebody, if they're hearing you, they want to connect with you? Maybe they want to know more about you. Maybe they feel like, hey, I got a brother, sister, cousin, aunt, whoever yeah. that, that needs some help. Cousin Eddie. Yeah. Yeah. So the re first resource I'll, I'll say is go to my YouTube. Now, I'm not a big YouTuber, but I did a nine part series on YouTube. It's this porn addiction series where I share my entire story. I also give tips on how to start to shift. So it's a whole bunch of free content. You guys are welcome to go there and check it out. Secondly, the most active social media I'm on is Instagram. So my Instagram is at Zach. Blake name, nobody has my name, so you can look it up that way. And if you DM me other people's shoes, 
views. I'll know that you're coming from this podcast and you're welcome to ask me any questions. Again, I'm an open book. I'm not going to withhold anything from you. And then you can go directly to my website. I am bornfree.net backslash get free now. The name of my company is Born Free. Uh, the reason for that is, again, so many people identify with an addict and I always ask them, were you born an addict? No, you weren't. So there's no way you can be one. And this is about remembering who you were before you got lost in the addiction. I love that. You were not born an addict. That's good. I feel like that should be on a bumper sticker. Have you guys thought about that in your marketing team? <laughs> no, I haven't. That's a pretty good statement right there. Or maybe put it on a hoodie, you know? <laughs> you know, I have a lot of shirt. Well, I don't have one yet, but I have a shirt somewhere, I'm sure, in the closet that says born a Tar Heel. You know, maybe hmm. we could cross that, like, exit out. and Born free. Be All right. Possibility. The only reason you're a Tar Heels fan is probably because your parents was a Tar Heel fan. Actually, they weren't. But I was actually no. born in North Carolina. So by all okay. intents and purposes, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm born so, a Tar Heel. So that okay. is true. Yeah, yeah. Camp Lejeune, okay. North Carolina. Shout out. Well, before we let you go, I feel like it's only fitting that we do some silliness. I feel like we had a, a clinic and I don't say that insincerely. I feel like you really provided a lot of clinical stuff as I stated already. And I love that. I love the element of the clinic, the mindset, and I love all that. So I tried in our research team did not send me a note fast enough. Had they send me a note fast enough, I would have tried to get an LSU cup for our senseless, which is all about silliness. So instead, we have to use my handy dandy North Carolina cup that I just happen to have here. So <laughs> happen to have it laying around the studio. I, I don't know about, you know, where it came. No, I do know where it came from. But if you notice, <laughs> I can now do the camera a little better. Look, it has a, like a line on it because it broke. Mm. It was on a shelf and it fell mm. off the shelf and it broke. But, you know, even broken vessels still can still be used. I've heard. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Anyway, we do this thing at the end of the show. It's called Senseless. It's these six random questions. That's why we use a cup and a die that makes them random questions. Sometimes they're serious questions. This season, they are flight-themed questions. So our, our team put together some flight-themed questions. So here we go. I'm going to roll for you. We'll see what number you get. By the way, new studio, new desk. So the desk is way better now. I can actually like throw the die and not have it on the ground. <laughs> Look at that. It's a number five and it's blue. It's a light blue five. How fun is that, Zach? <laughs> what does it mean? It just depends. <laughs> yeah, that's true. What does it mean? All right. You find yourself in first class. Have you ever flown first class, by the way? I haven't. All right. So this is a first. So you find yourself in first class. You got upgraded on the Delta flight, we'll say, or maybe United. I don't know. You choose the airline. It doesn't matter. You got upgraded to first class. You find yourself sitting there and next to you. Now, whether you're in the you know middle seat or maybe they're in the window or vice versa, wherever you, wherever you want to sit on the plane, doesn't matter. But you're in first class. Next to you is someone famous. Who do you want it to be? Currently alive or of all time? However you interpret that. Jesus would be next to me. Howdy. I did not have Jesus. Nobody in my notes had Jesus. Why him? Well, when we talk about being an example for integrity and honesty and grace and forgiveness and, and the things that uh, I very much identify with, and also just wanting to, all of you know, the Bible is a second and third person account of him. It's not his words. It's four different interpretations, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which all have different interpretations of what he said. These are external perceptions. So none of it is exactly what he said. 
So I would actually like to have a first person account to say, hey, what did you really say here? Hey, what did you really say here? Because I'd like to know, because that's where I think, again, there's there's something lost in translation about who the man was, what he came to do, what he came to show us as humans, which in my belief, and again, this is just my belief, is that he came to show us that we are all God and that he's not the only Christ, but that we are all Christ. That is a truly different perspective. I hadn't heard that one yet. It's different. different. If you point out a couple of verses in the Bible saying things like, have I not said that ye are God's? All this you will do and more. You are the children of God. I'm the son of God. Well, if I'm a child of God, am I not the son as well? I really think that, again, I, I come from a different perception. If I were to call myself a Christian, say that I am, but I'm a Christian to say that Christ is inside of all of us, just waiting to be remembered. I like that last line, especially waiting to be remembered. That's good. Mm -hmm. I do want to say truly, man, thank you so much for being here. I know we, like I said, the schedule thing was fun and going back and forth, and I'm glad we finally got to be able to walk in your shoes. So thanks for that, man. It's my honor, brother. Thank you. Well, guys and gals, kids and campers alike, that's the end as we begin our descent into Medford from Texas. It was a long flight. I think it's like two and a half hours almost, something like that. I'm wondering about this for you. Is there truly something inside you that you seem to just... Mm, can't get rid of. Now, listen, if you know, my dad was a Marine and we would have this crazy thing happen on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights as a kid. Here's what would happen. My dad would come in and inspect our rooms, bed made, floor clean, whole thing. Well, what my brother and I learned is he never looked under the bed, never looked in the closet. He just looked at the bed, looked at the floor. It was good. My mom, love her dearly, turned him on to the fact that we were putting stuff under the bed and in the closet. Never knew. Until he came in and started getting all the stuff out of the closet and under the bed, and then we were in trouble. What about for you right now? Is there something still hidden way back in the corner under the bed that nobody knows about that is still a secret that you're like, eh, if anybody knew about that, we probably wouldn't be friends very long. Huh. What is that for you this week? we get out of here. Think about that. Let me know. I'd love to know. OPSpodcast.com is a great place to let me know. You can let us know on the socials at OPS Podcast Show on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And last but certainly not least, remember when you walk in other people's shoes, you really do truly get a different perspective on life. Thank you so much for flying with us. We'll see you next week when we walk in other people's shoes.